Have you ever read a good book that was thought-provoking and wanted to talk about it with your friend? Well, you've come to the right place because that is what we do here. Welcome to the Bruz Bookshelf with your host, Lenny Gibbons. And Walter Atkins, a Real Talk book review podcast where we give you raw commentary on the thoughts about the content. Enjoy. With the NBA preseason starting and Zion Williams stunning the spectators with his high-flying dunks and debates over which team will lead the West, whether it's the Lakers with LeBron James and Anthony Davis or Kawhi Leonard and Paul George with the L.A. Clippers, or the early stages of the NFL season with black quarterbacks leading their teams in their divisions. To think that there was once a time when the NBA didn't have black players or that the NFL was all white. If I told you that, you'll probably think I was talking about leprechaun. Can you imagine the NBA without the dunks or the NFL without the speed and acrobatic catches? Or what if I told you that the first Kentucky Derby in 1875 that 13 out of 15 jockeys were black and the winner was a slave named Oliver Lewis, or that the black jockeys dominated horse racing in the 1600s through the 1890s. Then they were systematically erased from the sports, as if the faces of sports that we see today always look that way. From Tom Mullineau being the first boxer to going from being a slave to achieving international fame and wealth, and Major Taylor, a cyclist, who at the age 18 broke the record held by one of the earliest champions by 8.2 seconds. Then learning about Moses Fleetwood Walker, not Jackie Robinson, being the first black to play Major League Baseball. You will learn about the shrewd, resolute, visionary Rube Foster and how he started and successfully operated the Negro League, which blazed a trail for icons like Jackie Robinson and Willie Mays to how Branch Rickey exploited the Negro's desire to measure up and be accepted by the mainstream and the historic 1970 USC and Alabama game that changed the color of college football and collegiate sports. Chapters 1 through 6, The $40 Million Slaves, touch on the content that we're about to give you and our thoughts. What you think? Hey, I think our listeners are in for... A great, great, great amount of content and a great, great, great amount of information that's going to be life changing. Uh, I would suggest this book for any up and coming high school athlete, any up and coming athlete who's about to make that transition from high school to college, just to be able to give them a foundational base of where they've come from, their previous ancestors and how far they have to go and to give them an understanding of how important it is to not only be a student athlete, but also have a social impact on your overall race. That's important to me. And I think our, our listeners are going to get that uh, through all these uh, six chapters and through all the entire book. Man, that was pretty good, Walt. <laughs> <laughs> Walter bringing it tonight, well, I tell you that. <laughs> All right, so uh, the race begins, chapter one. I like how the author kind of like sets the stage up, and what he does is he kind of gives you a background of who he is, where he's from. He's raised in Chicago, a two-parent home. His daddy taking him out, showing him sports, playing sports with him, teaching him that, that there's more to life than sports, the social aspect of it. 
And he also kind of like brings you into the living room of a black family during that time. The author was born in like the 1950s. And so during his childhood, it was like during the early through the late 50s and the early 60s. And during that time, blacks and sports was like far few and in between. So when right. they sat down at the TV, they watched their sports. They just went with the black, the team with the black players. So, yeah. <laughs> so you know, they was like, look, we don't know what team we rooting for, but we're going to root for the team with the black people. Yeah, Soul Brother, number one. They was more so rooting for the team that, yeah, like you said, the team with the black people. So it didn't matter if the team was from California or USC. It didn't matter if the team was from uh, South Carolina. The team that had the most black players on the team, that's who him and his father uh, rooted for the most, you know. And then on top of that, it seemed like the players back in those days, I wouldn't even say the players, I would say, well, the players back in those days, they had a, a bigger target on their, on their back to be able to to perform on the field and also conduct themselves different outside of the field as well, too, even in interviews as well. Because the author was talking about how when him and his dad would watch the games, how even though they would know some of these coaches may be, you know, some, somewhat maybe racist or somewhat maybe uh, have a different agenda, but they had to root for these players regardless, man, because they had a, these are our guys, regardless of what team they was on. This is this is our guys, you know. Right, right. They they weren't really caught up on what school right. they chose or what team that they played for. Who else was on the team? They was like, look, we need to circle our wagon around them right. and root for them. And they represented right. us. The author had a quote in the book. He said that black athletes became our psychological armor, markers of our mm -hmm. progress, tangible proof of our worth, evidence of our collective soul. Our athletes threw punches we couldn't throw, won races we couldn't run. Any competition or public showing involving an African-American was seen as a test for us all. The job of the athlete was to represent the race. This was a heavy burden on one hand, but at the same time, it represented a noble, time-worn responsibility. You always represented. Always. So, yeah, you had to rep because it wasn't just about you. It was about you. And back in that time, whatever you did, they lumped us all together. Look at them niggas when it was just one person cutting up. So you made sure that you had to represent for everybody. Yeah. And you're right, man. That's a heavy load to carry for like a 19, 20-year-old. Yeah, that's a, that's a heavy psychological burden to carry for a 19, 20-year-old. And then to think about that as well, too, most of those guys at that age, depending on what part of the world they're from, or what part of the country they're from, whether they're from the Deep South or they're from... Uh, out in, let's say, the Bay Area of California, they may or may not be socially socially aware of their statue on that particular football team and what they actually mean to individuals watching the game. It was more than just a game that they was playing, you know. As you said in that, that past, it says athletes threw punches that we could not throw. In my opinion, what the author is saying is that we all wanted to stick it to the white man. And through athletics was our way of being able to say, listen, if we're on a somewhat equal playing field, I can beat your ass and you can't do nothing about it. <laughs> <laughs> so, so uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Go run and get your right. great white hope and bring his ass up in the ring and watch me lump his ass up. Right. <laughs> you stand him up and I'm going to knock, knock their ass, ass down. down. 
and that's the only legal way I can take out this aggression and all and all, and all this hatred that you've been giving me that I couldn't let out. It's all, it's all it boils down to. You're right. <laughs> Get your ass in the ring if you want to. <laughs> I'm gonna take it all out on you. <laughs> hey, hey! But during that time, Black was making gains. We had just, we had just came back from Jackie Robinson breaking the color barrier in the Major League Baseball. Then you had Floyd Patterson carrying the burden of the race on his shoulders. Unlike Jack Johnson, Floyd Patterson was like the perfect media story, clean cut. Yeah. But then you had the menacing. Sonny Liston. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Sonny Liston, man. Sonny Liston was a character. Right. Yeah, man. Sonny Liston was a bully. That Maurice uh, Baru called Sonny Liston the stereotypical nightmare of a bad nigga, the juvenile delinquent grown up. Yeah, Sonny Liston represented everything that America did not want a black man to be. It, well, yeah, everything America, well, he was pretty much America's nightmare in a sense. And then, right, because during that time you had black people, they was doing everything they can to try to impress the white people or placate and assimilate to a white culture so white people won't look at them in a negative light and then they can be accepted into their culture. So you had Sonny Liston, though, he was, he was the thug, thug. you know, he was the hit man that worked for the mob. So Sonny Liston represented the bad guy, but that bad guy went and beat they damn their pretty boy the, up. The, the, they, the bad guy went and beat the sanitized Negro, as they called him in the uh, <laughs> in the story. The, the, the That's what they called Jackie Robinson. They called Jackie Robinson the sanitized. Yeah, Negro. well, Floyd Patterson was a, was a form of a sanitized Negro as well too. If you look at the 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 definition of it, as far as a clean cut, well spoken, yes or no, sir. I won't hit back kind of mentality, you know? And then Sonny Liston was a polar opposite. That's why I say the sanitized Negro. That's how I look at uh, Floyd Patterson as being that kind of person. But with all that with all that being said about Sonny Liston, when Sonny Liston went up against Muhammad Ali, they wasn't ready for no. that. They was like, look, we done spent all these years trying to get right and trying to impress these good old white folks so they won't be coming looking for us and hanging us. And then here you go, coming with this new religion. You ain't even a Christian. <laughs> and you talking about Allah? Who the hell is our Allah? And the nation of Islam? You calling white people whiteies and all that? You know what? <laughs> I hope Sonny Liston beat your ass. Yeah, and it was a, it was a whole public shift. The white folks was, first they was booing Sonny Liston, and then they was... Looking at Ali, Ali was a Ali was like you got Sonny Liston who was a bully and who was a juvenile delinquent, and you got Muhammad Ali on the other hand, right? Muhammad Ali is young, he's flashy, he's pretty, braggadocious. Uh, he knew himself, so he had self worth. He knew his history. He understood the economical aspect of boxing at the time, even though he was represented by you know those white individuals from uh, from Kentucky, the group in Louisville, Kentucky that he was represented by. And on top of that, like, as you said, he, he was a part of the Muslim religion, this new taboo religion. And the Muslim religion was, for our listeners, that was more so talking about the the, the, the self, 
The self-preservation of the black man. Do for self. Act for self. Don't ask the white man for nothing. We have everything we need in our own community to be able to produce and benefit from the fruits of our labor. So so Ali right. was just like, they was like, damn, I'd rather deal with Sonny listening than deal with Ali. Because <laughs> he... Yeah. Right. And then and then there was a yeah. shift. You had the old guard leaving, entering mm. the new guard because Ali beat the brakes off Sonny Liston and knocked him out. So that was then there was a shift in the community and it was also a shift in the way people were thinking. We were moving out of a one phase, a way of thinking, into a new phase called what they called the new Negro. The new Negro fought back. The new Negro wasn't singing Kubaya. The new Negro was had the mindset of Malcolm X. You hit us, we hit you back. Because apparently singing and praying and joining hands ain't working because you still lynching and you still hitting us over the head with right. batons. Right. Hey, but look, check this out. Random question. Do you think how do you think if Sonny Listen would have if Sonny Listen would have won those fights, right? And he would have been Ideally, like the poster boy of boxing, how do you think that would have changed the uh, the American history? That's how how they blew how they view black people today. I know it's a random question, but it just crossed my mind just now. <laughs> I don't know. Uh-huh. Um, I think that Ali' career would have been wouldn't have been what it was if he'd have lost that first right. fight to Sonny Liston. I'm not sure if he would have came back and beat Sonny Liston, but Sonny Liston would have. He, he would have met yeah, his match. Eventually. Yeah, and eventually somebody would have tapped that ass. Because you got to realize that wasn't, people weren't going undefeated in boxing yeah. back then. Somebody, Somebody's style didn't match your style perfectly and they beat you. Yeah, style, yeah styles made matches. Styles made matches, style made yeah. matches, yeah. But the reason I asked that question, I was just thinking about because, you know, I mean, that, that one fight in particular uh, propelled Ali's young uh, boxing career and it made people believe in Ali probably more than Ali believed in himself because of the fact he was saying all these braggadocious things like I'm going to win I'm going to knock him out in eight Sonny Liston is ugly XYZ and then he got into the ring and he proved so many doubters wrong you know so that probably added on to his fan base and made people more drawn into him at the character Ali uh, than, than more than we could ever probably even imagine at that particular time, you know? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay, carry on. We go. Yeah, <laughs> uh, moving on. The author also talked about the Grambling uh, State and Morgan State game, the Whitney Young classic. And he talked yeah. about... So, yeah, in, in chapter one, we're still like, we're still taking the journey through the author's lens and we went from his childhood and how he was growing, how he grew up and how the culture in America was and how there was a shift in the idealism in America. So when he when he got older and he went out to college in 1968, he attended Morgan State and Morgan State had a game against Gramlin. So the president of Gramlin at the time was a guy named Ralph Waldo Jones. Mm-hmm. And he set out to turn Grambling into the Notre Dame of black college football. So in 1941, he hired Eddie Robinson as a part of the plan to put the little tiny school in North Louisiana on the map. 
So Eddie Robinson kept building the team up and improving and improving the team. And then by September of 1968, Grambling had more players in the NFL than any other college, second only to Notre Dame. Oh, by the way, shouts out to Grambling State University and the city of Grambling. My Aunt Sidonia, uh, we just came back from Grambling University. I mean, Grambling, celebrating my Aunt Sidonia's 100th birthday. 100th birthday party, you said 100? Um, yeah, 100th birthday wow. celebration. I'm from northern Louisiana, so that's kind of like how I know. Uh, a little bit about Graham. I'm from Monroe, Louisiana. Anyway, it was the fall of 1968. Morgan, who then was coached by a coach named Earl Banks, had lost the game since 1964, and they was on, they was coming off a 26-game winning streak where they was like the powerhouse in the North, and Robinson, Graham, and Tigers were the defending Black national champions, as well as the powerhouse in the South. So meeting between the two black schools, one from the north and one being from the south, was a huge draw. It was so huge that it caught the attention of two beer companies fighting for market share, trying to be a part of the lucrative black consumative market. Even the NFL, who once ignored the black players from black college, wanted in on it. Yeah, they more so, so it was like our Super Bowl. So yeah, they wanted in on that money because they saw. How we that game sold out Yankee Stadium, and and they saw like the black dollar and how huge the black dollar was, and another person that 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 caught the attention of was Branch Rickey. Mm-hmm. He was another person that saw that, and earlier he had already known about how the black dollar works and the black athletes and how they can improve his sports, and that's one of the reasons why he went out and he plucked Jackie Robinson. From his minor league and brought him into the to the uh, into the Dodgers organization. Right. I, I think thought? we should talk briefly about like how those promoters, uh, you said the, the, uh, those promoters, they 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 saw an untapped market and they wanted to tap more into the uh, the black market and being able to get some of those black dollars. Because one thing about America that we that we realize time and time and time again uh, throughout history is that. Money is always green, and when there's an opportunity, uh, opportunists will make a way to be able to get the money. No matter no matter the person, no matter who their consumer may be, whether that's white, black, Asian, Mexican, whoever it may be, if they spend the money, I'm gonna figure out a way to get some money out of the, out of their pockets, you know. And those individuals, they say, well, you know what? This this population of society, granted, they may be the outcasts of society. They may they may make the least amount of money. They may make poor decisions when it comes down to the financial well-being. But at the same time, they do have capital that we can tap into. And, and they do watch college football and they do go to college football games. So let's tap into, let's tap into that market and get some of that, that money, you know? You would think so. But I, you know what? I, I was thinking about that, too. And I was thinking about how far advanced America would have been or would have become if at the uh, at the end of the Civil War, during the Reconstruction period, if they would have just let that be, and then kind of like phased out the, the the shackles of racism, and then start moving America forward as a more progressive country, and become more of a meritocracy than than a country that's held back by racism and bigotry, right? 
So then you would have the best would rise to the top. The cream mm-hmm. would rise to the top. You would have the best students. You would have the best athletes. You would have the best thinkers, the best innovators, the best of the best, regardless of your race. If you're the top of this particular thing, then you're. Uh, then we're going to make it to the top. There's there's no restraint, and the only restraint is you. America would be so advanced right now. We'll be like a, a futuristic country. But what we've done over those years, we have allowed racism to hold us back. And we've cut our nose to spite our face just to be racist, right? right? And you will find in this book, and we will give you example after example on how the race advanced and how sports advanced through racism, jealousy, and bigotry, we were systematically, that was systematically etched in the system, and it caused us to go backwards, not forward. And so I understand what you're saying, Walt. Even today, we're not putting the best of the best out because we're still holding it back from racism and bigotry. For example, Colin Kaepernick. You know, uh, we getting we getting players, we getting quarterbacks that's been sitting on the couch for two years, and quarterbacks that's retired and say, "I don't want to play." Hell, I think they got a quarterback that the last time he played was in Pop Warner and gave yeah. him a job <laughs> before they ever yeah. nick a job. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, apparently, it's still affecting us today. We hadn't moved past it. Yes, money is green. But also, power is more powerful than the, and the power is more valuable than the money. And you can stay in power if you keep the rate, if you keep the umbrella of racism and bigotry up. But let's not get off the subject. Yeah, because I don't want to go on my rant because this podcast can take forever. Yeah, I was about to go on a rant as well, too, but I'm glad you said it. let's get back on the uh, <laughs> on the topic at hand. Yeah. Yeah. That game, Mark, what'd you say? I said, I understand completely where you're coming from. Right. That uh, that game, that Morgan State Grambling game marked a significant change up in what you said in economics and race relations. But that game wasn't, that game started, get the, uh, started getting the wheels turning because it invited endorsements and people wanting to sponsor it and get a hand up in right. that share. And that market there. However, even with all of that, these two black colleges, two black powerhouses, we did not capitalize on the commoditization of our own artistry, our own style, our own creation. You know, we fumbled. We fumbled back then. And one of the reasons why we fumbled, I can't say that we fumbled because we didn't have the the business acumen to capitalize on it. I think one of the reasons that we fumbled, and I think in the, which is a huge reason that we fumbled on that, is because we didn't own the infrastructure to capitalize on that. And that's one thing that we haven't done, but later on in this book and in this podcast, we're going to introduce you to somebody who understood that and started their own infrastructure to make sure that he capitalized and commoditized that. You're talking about the infrastructure of, of college football um, for those? No, the infrastructure to 
to uh, capture our creativity and make oh, money okay. off of I it. I understand. Right. So basically, the, yeah. the thing is outside of right. the game. So they saw, they saw how we can fill the That's Yankee right. Stadium and they came in and they said, okay, we're going to kick everybody in the office out, but we're going to yeah. keep the content and own the masters to your right. creativity. I understand what you're saying. Okay. I also think, uh, but to add yeah. on to that, I also think in addition to uh, us not owning the infrastructure and and us, uh, you know, pretty much playing playing the game how they want us to play it when it comes out to the politics wise. I think that because those African American schools um, had access to the players, pretty much um, exclusively access to those players, like down in Grambling, Louisiana, Grambling, they had the pickings of Grambling. Down in Florida A and M, they had the pickings of uh, every black athlete to come out, out of the state of Florida, you know? I think that because they thought that it would always be this way like forever and ever, and they got they got very complacent, correct. They got very complacent, and in that complacency, you know, uh, always in complacency, you always find room for error, and somebody can sweep in under your feet and take up your whole, your whole entire situation. But they got complacent, and as the book states, they did not reinvest into the infrastructure because they couldn't see the bigger picture on how sports would generate revenue to build their schools. Sports could be a vehicle to uh, bring in the money, the money they need to expand and grow their facilities. I would say that one of the reasons why they didn't see that because they were new to business and they didn't have the experience and, and we were just getting into the business part of the country because um, we, we were new to that as well. I think that would eventually turn around, but you know, hey, that was taken from us before we had a chance to turn it around. Yeah, I, I was, in the book, the author said, yeah, uh, mm -hmm. in the book, the author said the idea that athletes given a form would allow the example of Ali, Tommy Smith, and John Carlos has been shown to be mistaken. The notion that black people once they infiltrated the world of sports in significant numbers, will follow the example of Kirk Flood and to work to change the economic exploitation of the sports industry mm -hmm. was wrong. The idea that soul, black style, and artistry was one thing that couldn't be appropriated and commoditized by white power has proven to be laughably false. And black institutions that I thought would be the vanguard of the revolution have been stripped bare by the progressive rapacious forces of sports capitalism. Even the Harlem, I thought, I saw in 1968 was an illusion. The streets teeming with colors and sounds of black folks didn't match the reality of white ownership. Like sports industry, they dominated. African-Americans were not in control of this community. They merely rented. Black on the outside, white controlled on the inside. Harlem was a plantation. Harlem was a plan. I mean, that was a nice passage, man. <laughs> he, he. That came straight out of the book, man. That kind of reminded me. You remember in BET mm -hmm. Awards when Jesse Williams, the actor, he got up there and he accepted yeah. his speech. You remember yeah, you know what I'm talking about? He accepted his speech and he, he uh, went, well, I, not, I said went off topic, but he, he talked about what he talked about. Oh, when he accepted his speech and he and he gave his his, his award his award acceptance. Yeah, he said something about the the invention called whiteness uses and abuses us, 
burying black people um, out of sight and out of mind while extracting our culture, our dollars, our entertainment, like all black gold ghettoizing and demonizing our creations, then stealing them, gentrifying our genius and trying it on like costumes before discarding our bodies like rinds off a of strange fruit. The thing is that just because we're magic doesn't mean we're not real. And you always stealing our stuff and we don't get paid for it. Like my son got this game called Fortnite and they got, they stole all our dances on that game. And that's a huge part of the game on Fortnite. They do the, the flaws and all these little and all these little dances. And the things they used to condemn us for, now they took it. They play ratchet rap songs and the college locker rooms and at the game. Hell, they stole dill pickles, sunflower seeds from us. We, JJ, JJ Reddick. <laughs> Hell, we. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's about the man. Fortnite, he got a lot of lawsuits going on as well, too, from like uh, current black artists and then previous black artists as well, too. I remember that dance, the, uh, the Millie Rock. Yeah. A couple years ago. That dance is in the Fortnite game, right? right. So that artist, he sued the uh, the gaming company. The the amount they sued him for is not on the clothes or whatnot because they're out of court. But he sued him because of the fact that some of the characters in the game was doing his uh, his dance moves. And but even though he sued, let's talk about the other part of it. Like the guy Soldier Boy. I know Soldier Boy gets a, a bad rap as of recently. But Soldier Boy said that the game Fortnite, they approached him prior to the game even coming out. And he got paid a lump sum of money prior to the game even coming out for them to be able to use the crank that in the game. So, as you would say, you got a, a brand new rapper, a rapper, the guy that did the Millie Rock. He's not, you know, he's not well business savvy when it comes down to this kind of uh, terminology and this kind of being able to benefit from the game. But Soldier Boy... Young rapper, they probably around the same age, but been in the game for a long time, able to benefit and like get the benefits before the game even comes out, as far as the financial wise. So you got to be about your check. You got to be about your business. You and I can't say he wasn't business savvy. I can say that they probably didn't know who he was, <laughs> because again, you you in territories in uncharted territories that you don't know what's what and who's who. You just out here. You're like, ooh, uh, a shiny thing. Let me go over there and get it. Don't know that that shiny thing is uh, floating in a lake full of piranhas because you don't know you don't know what you're doing. You're just out here trying to take stuff and appropriate stuff, and you don't really know what it really is. You know what I mean? You don't know the origins of it. Yeah, you don't know the origins of it. You don't, you don't respect the culture behind it. You're just taking it because you think it's yours to take. And that's and, and that's the, the privileges of being in a dominant society. You don't have to respect the origins. You don't have to respect where it comes from. You just take it. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, I know what you mean, yeah. <laughs> just yeah. Hey, man, but moving on. Chapter two, the plantation, the dilemma of physical bondage. Okay. This chapter opens up with the story of Tom Mullineux, a slave who gained his freedom through his athletic abilities and moved to Europe Became rich. Oh, let's talk a little bit about uh, Tom Mullineau. That's your boy. Yeah, Tom Mullineau, he was that guy, man. Tom Mullineau was a man's man. So to give the audience a brief history on Tom Mullineau, Tom Mullineau was a was a guy who was abandoned in slavery. 
and his owner would make money off going all around to different uh, harvest fests to different um, other type of festivals and carnivals around the, the country and Tom Mullen would beat anybody that it was put in front of him whether that's a black slave whether that's a white person whoever it may be so Tom Mullen won enough fights to be able to buy himself out of into free uh but buy himself his own freedom from his owner so what he did he was a young guy after he bought himself out of freedom he went he traveled you know up, up in the east coast and he was started fighting fights in the east coast yeah wow his owner told him, he said, look, if you lose, you know that offer's off the table, right? What you want me to do? So? Only got one option. <laughs> Come on, man, I'm sorry. I just thought about that. I, I beat your ass too. <laughs> if I was a slave, you put me up in front of Mike Tyson, he ain't got no chance in hell. <laughs> I'm whooping his ass. <laughs> yeah, Mike ain't got it. Anyway. <laughs> yeah, so, so yeah, so, um, so Mullinu, man, Mullinu was, he, he, he bought himself out of slavery and then he, um, Went up to like, you know, cities like Virginia and then New York, and he was fighting all the white boxes. And then what happened is that he became so good that white boxes was, was afraid to was afraid to fight him. And he had to, did he get kicked out of the U.S. or he had to go just go, over, go overseas? I can't remember that part. No, it, he just left and he went overseas because they stopped fighting him. And he yeah. had enough money where he wanted to leave the country. Right. And I... Yeah, and and he had a he had a trainer that he knew that went over there, so he knew a trainer that and so he went over there following his trainer. Correct. So he go so he goes to another country, uh, following this black trainer who was a black who was a black boxing trainer back in the day. You know this guy, but when he when he arrives over there, uh, he he realizes that the the heavyweight champion over there is a guy named Cribs. Now Cribs have. Tom Cribs, right. So Cribs had retired from boxing and he had a regular nine to five job at the time. But Muller knew being the, the guy that he was, the young braggadocious guy that he was, he realized that he wanted to be recognized over overseas as well, too, as one of the top boxers. So what he did is he would follow Cribs around to his job site, uh, to his home when he's out in public. Uh, at a bar or wherever it may be Cribs was at and he would ask Cribs for a fight say Cribs I challenge you to a batch and Cribs would always say no I won't fight you um he didn't even say no he said you say you know what I won't fight you I'll give you two other challenges before you fight me right so Mullinu took those challenges on and he fought two other guys the first guy he knocked him out second opponent came up same thing, knocked him out. So now, in the general public's eye, they see Mullineau as being this young black guy over from America, and he's looking to fight Cribs, and they, the pressure is on Cribs' back. So Cribs has to now take a fight with Mullineau. So Right, because uh, Cribs owned the heavyweight title, 
And under British boxing custom, Cribs would have to surrender his title if he refused to fight a legitimate challenger. Right. And Molyneux was a legitimate contender, legitimate challenger of the actual belt. So Cribs and Molyneux, the date is set, right? The promotion is right. You got the Cribs, the old veteran, and you got Molyneux, the young, black, braggadocious young guy who's saying he's going to beat Cribs in the ring. They get into the ring, they're boxing, and they get up to about round 10 or 11, and then Molyneux. Pretty much. Pretty much Molyneux beat the shit out of Cribs. He beat his ass so bad that Cribs didn't get up and, and the fans rushed the ring and they said, ain't no way in hell this nigga beat up Cribs that goddamn bad because Cribs been beating everybody up. So they checked his glove. They said, this motherfucker must have bullets in his damn glove. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they checked his glove to see if he had bullets in his glove and it was like pandemonium in the ring. And during that pandemonium in the ring, he gave Cribs enough time to get his thoughts together. And at the same time, during that pandemonium in the ring, Somebody had hit Molyneux in the head with some right. type of object that kind of dazed him, and he was tired as hell. And then after that, Cribs got up, he gathered himself, and he ended up winning the fight. And I think they went like 40 yeah, rounds yeah, in that. Uh, rounds. Yeah. But Cribs was like, damn. Had not been for everybody coming in the ring, I would have mm -hmm. lost that fight. So, yep, between them two, Cribs knew that Molyneux beat his ass. And Cribs respected Molyneux. And at the same time, the, the spectators and the journalists saw that fight too. And they was like, damn, this motherfucker can fight. So although Molyneux didn't have an undefeated record, he had a lot of respect up in Europe. And so when he came back to the United States, nobody in the United States knew who he was. And th they purposely didn't know who he was because... They didn't want to publish anything in the paper saying that he went overseas and he gained all his fame and he was over there whooping ass and he came back and you too can do the same thing as he did. Hell to the gnaw. It said American slavery, an institution that refused to allow slaves and often their masters any news of the world that would suggest that black people had any alternative to bondage. That was certainly not going to be allowed to hear of a story of that suggested that a black could compete with whites right. on equal footing. American slavery was founded on the principle of benevolent authority. The notion that a white man knows what's best for a black man. The primary aim of slaveholders was to indoctrinate slaves with deep sense of fear and inferiority to make them accept the notion of white supremacy in all things. Harrowing Molyneux sports in England might encourage black independence at a time when the grip of slavery and the, the repercussions had intensified. So, hell to the null. So when Molyneux came back to the United States, he saw, and that was during the time when if you was a free black man, when he came back, he noticed that they was just, they can just simply picking up people and free black people and saying that they were slaves and shipping their ass right. back down south. Right, right. So Molyneux left, and I don't think nah, he came he back. back. He ain't come back. Well, as you were saying, as far as like free black man's roaming around the country, that's kind of reminds you of the movie 12 Years a Slave. Exactly. 
Exactly. So, and also in chapter two, they talk about like the dichotomy between how the Europeans saw their sports. I mean, the Europeans viewed their sports and how the Africans viewed their sports drastically through different lenses. And one of the reasons why, because in England in the early 17th century, because that's when religion competed with the attention of the sports and sports won. So in response to that in England, the Justice of Peace mandated the church, uh, mandated church attendance and suggested that sports activities be banded. Because one thing they wasn't going to do when they were establishing the Catholic Church was competing against right. anything. So one, you're trying to establish the, the church, and one a church is a significant piece in establishing a system of capitalism. Right. Right? But people wanted their sports. And one of the sports that they wanted really bad was football. So eventually, after, after it wasn't working, and, and they planned, and after much consideration and compromise, they made what was called a declaration of sports. So basically, they ensured the sanctity of Sunday morning to allow them to have the sanctity of Sunday morning to go to church, and they allowed them to have their sports and recreations later in the day, and thus football on Sunday. But on the other side, thousands of miles away, you had the people in Africa who was free and in tune with the universal vibrations. So in the sub-Saharan Africa, they had strong athletic tradition in Africa. So the, the athletics and the sports was like ro- woven into the fabric of their culture, right? So the men would race oxen and the women would play games using the ball and throwing the ball in various techniques while the, the male and the females, they would introduce their games through a dance and they also dance as a part of them honoring uh, honoring their deities so dance sports and athleticism was a part of the african culture mm-hmm. right and it wasn't suppressed and tried to force something upon them in africa they was they they were used to letting nature be nature and going with the flow mm-hmm. of the vibrations right so when they came to america the European thought, the European thoughts of sports carried over into America as well as the African thoughts on sports when it came over here. So the European judged the individual worthiness by the type of work he performed, and they thought playing sports was frivolous and, and inconsequential to survival. But the African thought differently. They didn't care much about the work because they said, shit, this shit don't benefit me. I don't give a fuck about it. You know what I mean? Only benefit the owner. But through sports, dance, and music, they can affirm their dignity, selfhood, and individuality. So that was the only time that the slave would be the master and the powerless would become the powerful through their sports. And that's how they showed their self-worth through competition with each other through sports. However, another thing about that, the slave children didn't participate over to fun of games that require eliminating other children because they knew through the whole and collectively they were better. So they never liked sports that would eliminate one another. Yeah. And when they had, when they fought with one another, they didn't fight in front of the master because the children were like 
they were so jaded about families being broken up. At any given time, their sibling would be sold off or their mom or their dad would be sold off. So since they was jaded by that, they never participated in sports where somebody would be eliminated. So they played a lot of group sports. So that's another thing to get into the psychology of the slaves back in the day. Hope you enjoyed. Please click the subscribe button to whatever podcast platform you're listening to. And remember to stay tuned in, stay learning, and keep reading.